This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with the President, a podcast series about diversity in the legal profession. I'm Canadian Bar Association President Ray Adlington. I'm a cisgendered, straight white man who became a successful lawyer and law firm leader without having to face discrimination based upon my gender identity, race, physical abilities, or sexual orientation. This podcast is my way of learning about those who have had to face these kinds of obstacles, and maybe identifying ways the CBA can help the profession move toward a more inclusive future. In this episode, I'll be talking with Indigenous lawyers about their experiences as part of the legal system. Merle Alexander is a member and hereditary chief of the Kitasu Hai Hai First Nation on the mid-coast of British Columbia. He's also a partner with Miller Titterly Law Corporation in Vancouver, where he is the leader of the First Nation Development Group. Merle practices Indigenous resource law with a focus on areas of title and rights affirmation, sustainable economic development, and environmental conservation. Welcome to the podcast, Merle. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks. During the introduction, I mentioned that you were the uh, hereditary chief of the Kitasu Hai Hai First Nation in British Columbia. And I'm interested in understanding more about what that means, not being overly familiar with First Nation governance. Yeah, well, I'm I'm one of uh, I'm one of a few hereditary chiefs from uh, Kitasu Hakes, and um, I mean each one of the like on the uh, coastal governance uh, process, there's a hereditary uh, a hereditary system, and then there's the Indian Act elected uh, chief and council. So the hereditary uh, the hereditary houses are essentially the rights and title holders, and the Indian Act Chief and Council um, really sort of operates the sort of day-to-day sort of municipal style type of on-reserve activities. Like for for me, that it's a hereditary um, title that was passed on to me by my uncle. It comes with it like responsibility for the um, family members in my house, um, maintaining sort of the integrity of our uh, family crest and the clan. So I'd like to sort of explore your entry into the legal profession. People tend to choose their professions based upon what's been modeled to them. The uh, fisher's child often becomes a fisher. Uh, the banker's child often ends up in banking, and the lawyer's child often ends up in law. Now, that's not my fact scenario. My father was in the military, uh, which didn't interest me, so clearly there are some that do break the mold. And I'm wondering, who were your professional role models as a young adult? Um, well, I'm the very first uh, person from my community to have uh, to have a bachelor's degree, um, let alone somebody with a law degree. Um, I mean... To be honest, I think I was a very argumentative child, which I think is a common experience of many lawyers, um, and was com- very commonly told that I should become a lawyer. But then um, I think like what really sort of solidified it for me was when I went to um, I went uh, and started studying for my undergrad, and uh, I was while I was in law while I was doing my undergrad in political science, the um, uh, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples was conducting its work. So in the early, the early '90s, I just sort of saw a lot of potential for change while I was doing my undergrad for it, like what Indigenous people could be. So it went from just from being just like a superficial idea to really being my drive as in undergrad. So, 
but there was always a lot of um, uh, political leadership in my life because my grandfather was um, my grandfather was a chief and counselor uh, in our community for about 22 years, and pol the politics of the day and indigenous rights discussions, even though I probably wasn't sophisticated enough to completely understand them, they they were happening all around me, a lot of the house, and I had a sense of sort of, I guess, what our family's role what is in our community. So I had a sense of responsibility to my community. I can't imagine the weight of expectations you must have felt as you blazed this new trail for your community. And I'm interested in f understanding more about how you, that was experienced for you and how you coped with that responsibility. I mean, it's uh, sometimes I say that it's, it's the heaviest weight on my shoulders or on many Indigenous people's shoulders to have your community have such great expectations for you. But then I also often say that as much as it's the greatest weight of my shoulders, it often is what lifts me out of bed because I think practicing and, you know, being indigenous and practicing, uh, indigenous rights law, um, has such a personal to the core of your being, uh, in, inspiration to it that I think just practicing like commercial litigation or or um, or just doing leases every single day might not inspire you I've sort of gotten beyond the um, beyond feeling the pressure of my community because you know I think it's you know Practicing this area is also a way of always giving back to your community. So, I mean, I feel like that uh, there's a real reciprocal relationship between between the work that I'm doing for Indigenous communities um, throughout British Columbia and some extent Canada and what they give back to me. It's really more of like a give a give and take. I think at at some point, like it felt much more more like a burden and. Now it just feels like a, an ongoing reciprocal, reciprocal relationship or a give and take. So let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself an Indigenous lawyer or a lawyer who happens to be Indigenous? Hmm. I, don't, I don't know if there or not there's really any, any distinction for me. Um, being a lawyer, like practicing in this area, in some ways, they're, like it's the, 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 two, the two are completely inseparable from each other. It's which is good and bad because it's good in that it's good in that I have that sort of inspiration as part of my everyday. But when things are actually like when we're in a regressive time period, it also feels like the practice is miserable. So it's, it's such a, it's become, it's just my raison d'etre. Like I just like it, it, it's sort of my, this is my intended path by the, by the creator that I, that I, that I practice indigenous law and that I do what I can for our people's. And you've spoken in the past about the need to demystify Indigenous law, and I'm interested in understanding more about what you mean by that. Every single law firm that I've ever that I've ever worked in, people just um, when it comes to Indigenous law or Indigenous legal orders, as it's more commonly sort of uh, like characterized, even just even the common law engagement of of Aboriginal law, um, people sort of just treat it like it's a very complicated international tax area or something like there's no way that the average lawyer says, Oh, that's an indigenous law issue. And then there's, that's, that's such a 
complicated or I'm so ignorant in that area, I'll just put it on a pedestal and say there's no way I could possibly, I'm too ignorant to ever offer any anything intelligent about that area of law. So you answer that question. And that, I think even being an indigenous being an indigenous lawyer in law firms, you experience that the same where people just sort of mystify the area, your area of law like it's it's not, you know, it's so foreign to 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 the common lawyer that um, they could never understand it. And reality is they would never want to educate themselves in the area. And like in, in the indigenous legal practice, we're just offering legal services to indigenous clients. And they've become like indigenous clients have become uh, their legal needs have become so diverse. They're not just practicing like Indian Act based governance and you're not being asked to just like discuss about things that are on or off reserve type of discussions. They've moved into every single natural resource area, every single um, um, corporate commercial realm, like they're involved in large scale transactions and murders and acquisitions. They're doing intellectual property, like in, um, they're doing trademarking, they're Part of that demystification is inside of law firms is saying, actually, no, it's just they're just clients and they need legal services the same as the, the same as any one of our clients. As indigenous legal practices continue for decades in large law firms and small law firms, people start experiencing that really the that there's the practice areas are not as separate and they're certainly not as foreign. And there's more far more similarities than there are differences. Right. And for lawyers who are regularly enga engaging with Indigenous clients, what advice would you provide them to increase their capability to deliver culturally appropriate legal advice and services to those clients? Probably the simplest thing that you, you could say, which is, is to just listen more than you talk. <laughs> because I think that's... Um, Lawyers especially are trained to fill the blank and, and are, are uncomfortable with silences. And there's a tremendous, if you, I think if you want to learn more about your clients, you have to listen more to them. There's also probably something to listening to, to them or to being with them where, in the places that are most important to them, in their own communities, like, in their, like on the land and visiting their actual territories. I think, you know, that's probably similar of all clients. If you're ignorant of something, you have to educate yourself to the, the, the natural, the countermeasure to that is to educate yourself of it. So if you want to learn more about an indigenous, a particular indigenous client, then visit their territory and listen to them more. When you have clients that haven't been listened to in the history, in, in the history of Canada, really listening, placing value on like what's important to them, I think can, is, is part of that that hopeful transformation that we're sort of all like experiencing right now. Yes. And, and what's your experience been with acceptance in the legal profession as an indigenous person? I, I spent a lot of, a lot of my time in law firms, educating, trying to argue for the value of my legal area and then, and avoiding the false stereotypes of how simplistic the clients are. Lots of, in lots of ways, I feel like I've wasted a lot of my own time in the legal profession trying to educate other lawyers about the practice area and about Indigenous peoples. So it's, you know, I'm debunking myths. You know, so I think it's it, it, a, a lot of time in the profession is 
you know, for indigenous lawyers, is wasted trying to actually create some value in it. I think that's that's changed because um, that's changing in that, like, when I first, like, uh, it was very common, say, like, 20, 25 years ago for especially um, law schools that were sort of helping Indigenous law students send out their CVs to, to not identify as being Indigenous. And the advice was often to not even identify that you'd actually want to practice Indigenous law because it might be looked on unfavorably. And I've sort of, ex ex in some ways, because I've changed law firms a few times, I've been able to sort of experience the, the change in the value placed on Indigenous law. Um, I still think that there's still a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. Like I think right now, people at least appreciate that it is a profitable area of practice. And before, it was only Aboriginal law boutiques or those that were worked for industry against Indigenous peoples that saw the value in it. But now, you, you would be hard pressed to not go to any single law firm, any national law firm or international law firm, and look on their website and not see that Indigenous law is one of the things they say they practice. Um, I mean, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, and I think that um, law, like the legal education is a big part of that. Um, uh, part of it, I mean, I think some of it, that's capturing like the new law students. I think new, like people coming out of law school now, they have enough sort of indigenous law content that they're not completely ignorant of the practice area. But there's, that doesn't, account for the, the the decades of other or like the the other like 90 95 percent of practitioners who went through law school at a time where where it wasn't emphasized i mean i think it actually would be helpful if the canadian bar association and law law societies made it mandatory that that lawyers had to as have a couple credits in, in indigenous law every year the same way that we're required to have ethical credits because there's just too much ignorance in one of the most important areas of law in Canada. It's been positive and negative. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. How did those early experiences affect and shape you on a personal level? Um, I mean, it, sometimes, it, sometimes it was very isolating. Uh, but I mean, I have fairly good social skills. So I guess I just sort of like found my, my way through it. And one of the, I have, like, I've always, I'm probably sort of a little bit known for in the practice of being somebody who focuses very extensively on business development. So I was able to just prove people wrong, you know, where they thought the practice was unprofitable. I was able to find, to build a client base. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe in some weird way, actually, it, it, it helped me that people didn't necessarily believe in my area of law because it drove me harder. It, it made me want to get, get my own clients and then prove to the firms that I was in that, that, that the area of law was much more diverse than just Indian Act, like reserve-based governance, that it was something that would use the legal services of the firm. And because my the work would be done by such a diverse range of lawyers in the firm, proved people wrong. I look forward to that day. Thank you very much, Merle. I appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thank you. And now we travel from Vancouver across the country to Halifax to speak with Naomi Metallic. Her resume lists educational and professional achievements, public service, and publications. Pages of impressive achievements for someone called to the bar just 10 years ago. 
Naomi was included in Canadian Lawyer Magazine's list of top 25 most influential for 2018. She was the first person of Aboriginal heritage to clerk for a Supreme Court Justice. Naomi now holds the inaugural Chancellor's Chair in Aboriginal Law and Policy at Dalhousie University's Schulich School of Law, her alma mater. Naomi Metallic, thank you for joining me today in the podcast. I'm tempted to say the Mi'kmaq word for welcome, but I'm afraid I'll mispronounce it, so could you please help me? Bisqua? <laughs> uh, Bisqua. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to start with your background, if we could. Uh, where are you from? I'm from the Listigouche Mi'kmaq First Nation, which is on the border of Camelton, New Brunswick, and uh, the Gaspé coast of Quebec. So it's clear from your many pages of accomplishments that you're very driven. Uh, what were your motivations? Uh Let's see, both my parents uh, um, pursued uh, uh, post-secondary education and um, growing up, um, my father, who, who was Mi'kmaq, my mom is uh, French from Quebec, um, they met when she was studying in Campbellton, New Brunswick, um, but uh, education was always a really important thing uh, for both my parents, but my dad in particular really wanted his daughters uh, to go to university and to do well in school and uh, um, it's too bad he didn't get to see me become a professor because he would have been so proud uh, to know that I had gone that far in academe. Uh, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast series is to hear the stories of people who don't look like me and haven't had the same types of privileges to understand them better and perhaps become an ally in the struggle to change. Uh, the question is perhaps unfairly broad, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, <laughs> what has your experience as an Indigenous woman first studying law and then practicing it been like? Um, in fact, I'd never really thought of becoming a lawyer until perhaps my third year of my undergrad. It, there was nobody in my community growing up that I remember being a lawyer. Nobody, no family members that had gone to law school or anything like that. So it hadn't actually occurred to me. And I think, uh, I think that in popular sort of uh, culture, we tend to think of lawyers as people who like to argue. I think both you and I know that that's <laughs> not even necessarily a good quality to have as a lawyer. Very true. Um, but uh, anyway, so I hadn't actually thought it would be um, a profession for me. I think uh, I, I, I did well in the arts. I, I did very well in writing. And I came to Dalhousie um, uh, pursuing an English degree and had flirted with the idea of journalism. Um, and then throughout doing my undergraduate degree, um, realized that uh, I had taken some history courses, and um, uh, in the history courses, particularly particularly focused on Canadian history, I this is when I was more exposed. My dad was knowledgeable uh, and did impart some some knowledge, but I think I got deeper into it and more concerned about um, political issues as they affected Indigenous people um, when I. Uh, went to university. So in taking these history courses in particular, and then pairing that with a bunch of philosophy courses I started taking, then really got really interested in the treatment of Indigenous people um, by the Canadian government in particular, and started reading books like Harold Cardinal's The Unjust Society. And I read a book about residential schools. And I really, I had known perhaps a little bit about it, but really, this was really eye opening. So it's kind of perhaps ironic that an Indigenous person had to go to a, a non-Indigenous um, higher education uh, institution in order to really sort of get the fire lit. Um, there was a professor at the time in law school, Patty Doyle Bedwell, who um, 
found uh, spoke to me and said, you actually make a really good lawyer. You should consider pursuing that. So that's what I did. Um, and I applied to Dalhousie Law School. Um, the only place I applied to, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what law school would really be like, kind of really flying by the seat of my pants, but it's worked out um, well. And I applied to the Indigenous Blacks and Mi'kmaq program. And uh, I think that's an excellent program. Um, to my knowledge, there's really no other uh, initiative or program like it at any other law school in Canada. And I attribute it uh, in big part to my success and I think to the success of quite a few other Indigenous and Black lawyers. It put some people in my path and, and gave, opened the door to certain opportunities, which I took advantage of. I pursued some things even if I didn't think necessarily I was capable of it. I applied to clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada. I got accepted uh, to do that. Um, I feel that my early career um, that I was quite lucky in the people that crossed my path and that but I was also hardworking I'd say but I, I met good people who crossed my path and um, I had uh, really good opportunities. If I could tell one story um, I, uh, the IBNM initiative had this mentorship program that they had set up for students in the program. And um, I got paired with uh, Michael Wood of Birchall's, now Justice Michael Wood, as you know. Um, and uh, so this was an attempt to get more uh, Indigenous and Black lawyers into private practice. And um, I remember the first day I stepped off the elevator. I'd never been in a law firm before, and I sort of, in awe, I'm in first year law school looking around, and I was like, oh my God, this place is so opulent, and I couldn't believe it. And I didn't really, again, flying by to see my pants at that age, um, I thought maybe I'd end up in legal aid. I, I hadn't thought a lot of it through, to be really quite honest, right? I was 21. Anyway, I had a nice time. I think we met uh, five or six times. He introduced me. I sat in a couple of client meetings. And uh, at the end of it, said, thank you very much. Really great to meet you and, and speak with you, Mr. Wood. And I think I said something like, I don't know about private practice. I don't know if it's for me. And anyway, we kind of left it at that. And then comes second year. And I don't know if it, what it was like for you in second year law, but I know the students now face the same experience I did, is you get, you get there and about two weeks into there, they say, you know, you've got to find a job, job. for the yeah. rest of your life, right? And <laughs> you're a failure if you don't find it. Or no, uh, or so they'll have you believe. So I was then a bit worried about doing the OCIs. I'd heard kind of terrible stories about the OCIs. I still hear sometimes some terrible stories about uh, the OCIs. So I was a little bit reluctant to do it. Um, and then I remembered uh, my experience at Birchall's and Michael Wood. And so I, um, I, I sent him an email and asked him if he wanted to do lunch. And he kindly agreed. And we, had, we were at Salty's and uh, exchanging pleasantries. And Michael's very smart. So very quickly, he cut to the chase and said, do you mind telling me why we're here today? And I said, do you remember when I told you that I wasn't interested in working in private practice? And he shook his head, yes. And uh, then I said, well, kind of changed my mind and uh and I said uh and I'd really um be interested in working with you guys and he said he shook his head and he said yeah I figured that's what this was about <laughs> and uh and um the way Birchill's hired at the time um he had actually guessed all of this in advance had cleared it with the partners because he was on the articling committee and was prepared to offer me a position there for articles right there so really lucky but great to have Michael cross my path at that point and had not been for the mentorship program that the IBNM initiative had probably wouldn't have happened. And he has been a key figure 
in my uh, formation as a lawyer, as have a few of the other lawyers at Birchall's. And um, probably from my experience summering there and some of my courses, you know, that gave me the confidence to apply to the Supreme Court. So with that confidence that I gained from those great people that I worked with, um, that led me to apply and get accepted to work with Justice Bastrash, who was then another really important figure for me going forward and, and, and a mentor to me as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate what you're saying, but I do have to disagree with your characterization of it being luck. That's a, that, that's initiative and making your own opportunity. I suppose. <laughs> so during your early years in private practice, uh, did you feel that your experience was different in any way from those of your colleagues? Mm, well, I didn't have a lot of other colleagues in private practice at the time. I had, uh, well, the few that I did have ended up not staying very long. So it was different in that I stuck around until perhaps my seventh or eighth year at Birchall at one at one point there was three or four or five of us at Birchall's who were indigenous right which was unheard of I mean for a long time I was the only associate in Halifax who was indigenous so it was different in that I I, I stuck around in that regard um beyond that is it was it different from my uh other other non-indigenous associates I I I I haven't really compared notes with them. I think it was, um, I have to say that I always felt pretty supported. I had some really good people, again, around me uh, coming up as a young associate. Um, Justice Wood was excellent. I also then, uh, Ann Smith, now Judge Smith, were other people who were pretty key to sort of helping me come up as a baby lawyer. So um, that was that was really helpful. Um yeah, and I, 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 again, tried to work really hard, but I also felt supported to be able to try. Because we had the Aboriginal Law Practice Group, we were actually encouraged to do stuff in that community and could, you know, we could make the business case for doing things um, in with uh, certain clients and or, you know, even doing things pro bono. Um, so that was really helpful to uh, help build my name in, in the communities as well. So I, to come back to your question, and I haven't done a great job at answering it, I, I don't know if it was any different, in so, but I do know that I was one of the few that did stay in private practice. So I know as a fellow alumnus of the Dalhousie Law School, the Indigenous Black and Mi'kmaq program has been in place for nearly 30 years now. I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit more about the program and how you feel it has helped you as a lawyer and wh whether or not other law schools should consider similar programs as part of their uh, offerings. Sure. So um, the IBNM initiative is a um, an initiative that it 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 dedicates uh, seats for uh, both Mi'kmaq and Black uh, students in each incoming year. So I believe it's six for uh, Mi'kmaq, and if there are not enough, if there's not enough Mi'kmaq interest in a particular, they may open it to other Aboriginal people as well as uh, um, same for African Nova Scotian. And if there are other, if there's space, uh, there would be other African Canadians who would get the space. And in addition to that, there are some. Um, support for tuition and books, as well as a number of supports provided for the students, right? And not and when they're admitting students, they look not just at LSAT grades and marks, but also their community experience and what they may have done uh, prior to coming to law school. Many people come as more mature students. Um, and it's an excellent program. There has been over 200 grads um, since uh, the law school uh, began this program, 200 grads from the initiative. And uh, it's been a couple years since I looked at our Bar Society stats, but in Nova Scotia at the time when I looked at it, I think in 2015, 2016, there was over 50 Aboriginal 
um, people call to the bar here in Nova Scotia and 50 African Nova Scotian at least. And I'm sure it's more than that now. But if you contrast that with our neighbors uh, in New Brunswick, they also have a law school. They don't have such an initiative. I can count on one hand and less than one hand uh, the Aboriginal lawyers who are called to the bar in New Brunswick. I mean, it's, it's the supports that it creates, but it also creates this amazing community. And that's something that's really important as a minority you don't maybe realize until you're there, but I can imagine if it had just been me alone at some law school or maybe me or two or three other people. But when you have, you know, in a law school, 36 other people, uh, you know, 18 of which are from your community, 18 are from, a, you know, another community, African Nova Scotian, but you have a lot of similarities in terms of the histories you've faced. Um, that's a huge difference. You know, you have that support behind you. And we do form you know, this informal network after we graduated and we're alumni, we support each other. Uh, we often have lots of uh, things during the year, gatherings. Um, we, we at every big milestone, we celebrate the IBNM initiative. But that's really important stuff because we don't come from families that or many of us don't come from families that had, you know, lots of lawyers and judges in them. Right. So this is creating those those networks that we all need in order to help move us forward as lawyers. Yes, and also creating role models for the next generation of Indigenous Black and Mi'kmaq exactly. uh, youth within Nova Scotia and beyond. Yeah. So if other law schools are interested in forming these types of programs, who at the Schulich School of Law would they speak with? Um, certainly our dean and also the director of the initiative, uh, whose name is um, Michelle Williams. So let's talk about that as a theme. What can you and I and our peers do today so that my daughters and their Indigenous peers aren't having these same conversations in 15 or 20 years? Well, I mean, I guess it let you, you sort of identify perhaps what are some of the challenges that, that we're facing. Like, I guess if we're talking about law firms and law like law firm culture, what, what is it that, you know, first is sort of understanding what are the problems, right? Um, what, what are the issues that are facing? I mean, we were talking before we were on air, but that we are seeing that, uh, you know, a lot of associates, in particular female associates um, and people of color and Indigenous people, may tend not to be sticking around, you know, firms, right? So is there something there? You may not get all the steps right, um, but you you need to start at least trying and trying to figure out what are the, the, the solutions to that and asking questions to sort of figure out, well, why are, why are so many people leaving? And what are we doing to make other people feel included in our spaces that we inhabit, right? In our firms, what are we doing to make people feel included or be able to do stuff? Like... Um, and so I think that, yeah, that is a question that, you know, individuals can ask themselves within their firms. What am I doing to help other people here who may not feel included feel more included? No, I appreciate that. Uh, I think it's good that we all each take responsibility for uh, moving forward, advancing. Yeah. So final question, uh, what is the most important idea that you're trying to impart to your Aboriginal law students today? I would say that... Uh, the main thing that I'm trying to impart is that we still have actually a far ways to go in um, the law's recognition. Our case law is still deeply embedded in some fairly still racist doctrines, although we don't readily see that. But there's this concept called the doctrine of discovery, which is based on this idea that when European settlers first arrived here, simply by arriving and asserting themselves, they somehow gained control over all the lands and all and all the control, right? The ability to make all laws and control the destinies of the people who were already here. Um, 
And that's a pretty contentious doctrine and has now been uh, pretty well discredited in international law, right? So how do you how do you deal with that today, right? And what does that mean? Does it mean that everybody who, who came here on a boat in the, you know, since from the 16th century onwards has to go? No. Uh, but it does mean that we need to start having conversations about what does it mean to share this country together? Um, what does it mean in terms of lands and resources? What does it mean in terms of laws and power? And uh, to what extent do the Indigenous people and their descendants who are here have uh, should have control over, um, at the very least, day-to-day decisions that affect them? Because right now it's mostly other governments that make de- those decisions. Um, so my, I guess my overall message is that we still got a really, without getting too technical, a, a, a long way to go in sort of uh, reconfiguring uh, or thinking about the laws in the way that really see us as sort of mutual partners on this land as opposed to uh, uh, crown and subject. And for those that are interested in learning more, where can they find some of your academic writings on these uh, subjects? If you go to SSRN, it stands for Social Science Research Network, I try to upload all of my papers. It's a free network, and actually you can go find all kinds of great papers uh, on this site, more and more academics, uh, as well as publishing in, in journals, as we are you know, required to do. Um, also put these for free on, on such sites so that people can have ready, ready access to ideas, to our ideas. Thank you very much for coming here today to speak with me. Thank you. My guests this episode have been Merle Alexander, who practices Aboriginal law in Vancouver, and Naomi Metallic, who teaches Aboriginal law and practices in Halifax. For both of them, education is a key component in reconciling relations between our cultures. This is an idea that the Canadian Bar Association is working on with our Truth and Reconciliation Task Force which will be reporting early in the new year on ways to advance the educational calls to action made by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Have you experienced discrimination or exclusion in your law school or law firm because of your gender identity, race, religion, color, sexual orientation, or other cultural differences? Or, on the other hand, how have you experienced inclusivity? We want to hear your stories. You can reach me on Twitter at at CBA underscore news, through Facebook, or on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can find this podcast and other episodes on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcasts. Listen for us next time when we'll be talking to CBA members who have been there, experienced that, and have stories to tell about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>